Well, good morning, everybody. And I want to share with you this morning from Exodus. We've been here before, about 20 years ago, I think. Uh, but there's a lot of glorious water under the bridge since then. Um, let me say ahead of time that I will be addressing certain areas that might be different to you. Um, or at least, shall I say, they do not take a front seat in Western Christianity. And so just be aware of that and be ready to believe what I say, <laughs> even though you're not used to it. Okay, of Exodus chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked. Behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, Yahweh, I am. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in this wilderness. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord, I am, will fight for you while you keep silent. Okay, I, I know it's a very well-known passage of Scripture but I want to look at it as it applies to every one of us. The people were at a dead end. I, you, you would really need a map to see just how dead end they were. Um, they, they had come off the main highway, which was a, a very straight road down into Canaan, and they had gone off into the unmapped, trackless wilderness, and as they meandered through the sand dunes, they come to the shores of the Red Sea. The Red Sea um, is a sea. There's um, a lot of debunking going on today. People don't want to admit any of the miracles, and they say the Red Sea was just a very shallow place of reeds. And because um, the miracle there is, okay, if you accept that, the miracle is that the whole Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water. But um, that's okay, no problem. Um, the, the, the people faced a very real, very real sea. There was absolutely no way through. It would be the same as if we came to the Gulf of Mexico and um, said, keep walking. There's, there's no way through. Only in this case, there were mountains of sand dunes behind them and around them, and there, there was nowhere to turn either way, and certainly not straight forward. And it's at that point that they realize that Pharaoh um, is behind them. The period of mourning in Egypt 
were six weeks. And so this is about six weeks after the morning of the firstborn's death. You know the whole story. And Pharaoh then suddenly wakes up. What have I allowed them to do? Uh, this is ridiculous. What came over me? And, and so he gets uh, special ops. Um, it says 600 of his best. It was in the whole Egyptian army. Um, and they follow. And of course, they, they realize they've gone off into the wilderness. The idiots. They, they don't know where they are. They don't know what they're doing. It, this is going to be like shooting goldfish in a bowl. Come on, let's go. And so they are pursuing them. And of course, they pursued them on their horses with uh, those little steps behind them on wheels. Uh, and then you go very fast. They had races with those things. And, and they're coming across the desert. The, the desert air is filled with sand as the blowing from the Egyptian wheels. The, the Israelites see it and they realize nowhere to turn. And it says they are very frightened. I want you to feel this. Don't don't let this be a story of um, you know three four thousand years old. Um, they are facing the impossible in this very physical world. That is, there is no one to save them. No one. You can't get out of this situation. And also there is no thing to save them. Because for them to even consider the possibility of, of making a stand against the Egyptians was ridiculous. So no one and no thing to save them and obviously no way out. This is a very real situation and you will not understand the story till you've stood there with them and, and felt that sinking feeling in your gut that there is no way out. And... It's fascinating to me because uh, they were very religious, Israel, and, and the first thing they did was cry to the Lord. That sounds a very spiritual thing to do, except in the next sentence, they sort of slide over from praying to the Lord and talk to Moses, which gives me the very definite impression that what they said to Moses, they just finished saying to the Lord. And, and it's an outburst of anger and, and terror because most fear is a form of anger anyway. Uh, and, and their anger, they are blaming. The whole jolly thing is blame. They're blaming Moses for uprooting them from Egypt, where they had everything under control. Slavery was a safe zone. At least when you went to get up in the morning, we knew what we had to do, and we knew when it was going to end at night, we knew the dangers. It was a very safe, a very beautiful place to be. The slave camps of Egypt. And you came in and you uprooted us. Well, of course, in so doing, they're blaming God because Moses had showed up in Egypt in the name of Yahweh. I am. And so they're blaming God. But then they hated themselves because they remembered, we told you this. Yes, and we were so stupid. We listened to you. And so they're blaming Moses, they're blaming God, they're blaming themselves for ever listening to Moses, and their fear terminated in prophecy. They prophesied their own death and that they would have graves in the desert. That was their idea of turning to God in prayer. It was just spilling their anxiety and their panic into the ears of God. 
Incidentally, that is not prayer. Um, they, they perceived, the, the way they looked at it, you've got to get inside their head, what, the way they're looking at that they had lost control of their lives when they had followed Moses and God out of Egypt. And now they're in this chaos, chaos, and the only natural end to their chaos is going to be death. I said, you've got to get inside their shoes, inside their head, very seriously. Otherwise, the rest of the story doesn't really affect us. It's a, a nice fairy tale. But if I can face the fact I've been here, some, I'm sure, if I go all through who are on Zoom as well as who are here, there are some of us that are here right now. It's the time when the situation couldn't be worse. Feel it. It is the meaning. It's the definition. This is the poster child for impossible. It's an impossible situation. And fear has been carried to the ultimate. You know, when you when you say it, but you say it because it's the final truth as far as you're concerned, I don't know what I'm going to do. I have absolutely no way of even thinking about the next five minutes. I don't know where to turn. That is one of the Old Testament definitions of anxiety, to be in a canyon where you can't turn. Your shoulders are rubbing both sides and you can't turn. It's as if, and I've heard this from the lips of people, I have received a death sentence today. That is, everything that I call life is about to end. And there's absolutely no way out. And so our reaction, because we have this thing about control, we're still, we can say that and then we'll try this and we'll try that and we'll try this again. Uh, and have you ever lost something and looked in the same box 20 times? Because it's the same thing. You know the jolly thing isn't there, but you go back and you go back. And there's this, I've got to be in control. It is something innate to the human. I've got to try it, even if it didn't work last time. And then sit down again and say, it's all over. I'm finished. I can never survive this. There's no way out, nowhere to turn. There's no one to help. I, I want you to feel being there. Otherwise, I can't apply what happened to you. It merely becomes something of an ancient scripture. They were terrified. They cowered before a situation that they had no control over and they mentally surrendered to death. Inevitable. Okay, I've said it about four times now. Fear is all about control. Get that straight. Fear is all about control. It arises from the Garden of Eden. You shall be as God. And any God worth its salt is in control. And therefore, if I am going to be as God, I have got to be in control of every detail of my life. And the moment I'm not, then I fall apart. And the, the, my world has come to an end because I'm no longer in control. 
This is basic to fear, but it's also basic to faith too. It's basic to the entire gospel because that was the heart of, of the fall. It was the heart of sin. It was the heart of rebellion. Man wants control. And he wants control at least alongside of God, but preferably over God. Man must have control. And then you come on these situations in life called the Red Sea, and you realize like a stomach punch that you're not in control. And there's that. Of course, the, the truth is, the whole thing is, is stupid. You're not in control. You, you, you were not even in control of sunrise this morning. I mean, at least you should start there. But you're, you're not. And, and there's no way you can stop the sun from setting tonight right on time. In fact, you have no way uh, of um, making the sun go down at the right time. Either they've got it all worked out for centuries to come, what time the sun will rise, and you can't stop it. It's frightening, really. Um, you know, the, the the leaves are falling off the trees. I, I can't stop it. I'm not in control. I can't even control the spin of this earth through space. And all of this, you realize, controls even what I'm breathing. Just take a little bit out of this and a little bit out of that and put a little bit of that in, uh, and the spin stops and we're all dead. And here we sit without a care in the world, even though we have no control over our existence whatsoever. Be good to remember that and get all anxious about it, because that's what people do. Um, but when you meet the Red Sea, that's when we feel we've lost control. We, we feel, and we use the expression in a sense, that someone took away our control. I lost control, we say. I lost control. Someone stole it away from me. Something stole it away from me. I've lost control by something that was stronger than me, which means I've lost my moorings in life. I, I'm no longer controlling my boat. I, I've lost the anchor in life, and I'm just at the mercy of the currents, and I'm adrift. I lost control. And, and at that point, we feel, because I've lost control, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I must do. That feeling is what we call fear. And it doesn't matter. It can be right down to the smallest detail of a dinner party or all the way to the Red Sea. But the moment I feel I've lost control, I panic and life feels to be over. And of course, that's what I said, we pray. But it's not prayer. And I'm sorry, this, this is going to upset a lot of people. Because prayer is often taught as being, that, that's the way you actually attempt to gain control over God, as well as others. I, I'm not going to go into it, you should come to the December retreat. But... Um, how many times I listen to people pray, number one, as if God doesn't want to help this person, but if I scream loud enough, he's going to bow to my desires. And this person doesn't want to do what I know is best for them, but if I pray hard enough, their mind will be changed. We call that mind control, not prayer. Um, anyway, that, as I say, forget that. 
But that, that, that's so often, that's what they were doing. They're screaming at God as if you took away our control and see what has happened. And we interpret faith in much the same way, that it's an inner power. And if you have enough faith, you can force God's hand to change your circumstance. Right, thank you. Wow, yeah. That, that's, I, no. And of course, nothing happens. In, that, that isn't prayer, so there's no answer. And that isn't faith, and so nothing happens. Then you feel ashamed, and you're condemned by faith teachers that you didn't have enough faith. And so it goes on. That's what happened here. And of course, fear, you've got, if you want to keep fear alive, you, you've got to give it a story. We've talked about this before, that every emotion you have actually has a life of about 50 seconds. Your, your emotions are kept alive, and sometimes for 50 years, by the story you tell them. So, I insult you, and something rises inside of you. It's got a life of 50 seconds. You've got to tell yourself, did you hear what he said? And they demeaned me, they said this, they said that, she did that, she did that. And then you've got to go and tell someone else and the story grows uh, and your emotion keeps going and keeps going. They had a story. We just read their story. We were having a wonderful time in Egypt and then he came. He stole our control. We were having a good time and God broke in and took our control away. That's their story. And if you noticed, if you know the story of the wilderness, they told that story all the way through the wilderness. It was their story. Keep keep the emotions alive. Keep the fear going. Got to have a good story. I'm a victim. They stole my control away. I tell you, they threatened me. They suffocated me. They took away my control. And now I'm going to die. Keep it up. Keep it up. You won't sleep tonight, but keep it up. Keep it up. It's a good story. And they had it. What is God's response to these people? Fear not. Hmm. Fear not. Metanoia. Repentance, if you use the old religious term. Metanoia is a radical. I always use that term. Radical. Because it's turning something on its head. A radical changing of our controlling minds. Repentance is not weeping and saying, I'm sorry. Repentance, metanoia, is a radical change that I'm no longer in control. Okay, then whose control am I under? Not his, not God's control. Because you see, God will control nobody. The word control is a satanic word. If you have control within any religion, we call it a cult. But our beautiful God never controls anybody. And so therefore, when I change my controlling mind, it is I'm done with control. What is the opposite of control or what is what I discover in this new world of this incredible God who is love? 
we don't yield to his control, rather we trust him. And trust is not a blind surrender to the control of a faceless power. Trust is, dare I use the term, you're snuggling up to somebody who loves you. And it's okay because this person knows what he's doing. God never controls. That's the lie. The word is the lie. Wherever you find control, that's the lie. Pastors who control their people are not operating by the Holy Spirit. It's cult. You won't go there. Our God leads us. That, that's a term from Scripture. He leads us. He guides us. Casting all your care upon He cares for you. He watches over you with His infinite wisdom. That's relationship. And it's a relationship described as father and son throughout the Scripture. It's a relationship, one of the major illustrations of this relationship is sheep and shepherd. And again, you've got this shepherd who will risk his own life to find the sheep. A pet name for every sheep in that Hebrew world. I say again, it's a relationship of trust in which we rest into love. And in so doing, we enter into peace, shalom. So fear not is actually the call to entrust ourselves and our situation to this glorious God. Fear not. That's interesting. It's a, it's a command. If you're a counselor, you don't do that. I mean, here comes somebody to your office and they're trembling with fear and you don't look at them and say, Fear not! No, you say, come on, tell me all about it. Uh -uh. I don't think God spoke fear not like I just did. But on the other hand, we're, he wouldn't have said fear not. That's it, you, you, fear not. Unless we're responsible for what we fear. Do you follow me? When you say to a child, don't do that, it's because they're doing something that they, they've chosen to do, but they didn't have to do it. They chose to do it, so you say, don't do it. And when you say, don't do it, you are putting the responsibility on them. You are responsible, and you'll grow up, learn it. You're responsible not to do that, and therefore stop doing it. Right? You're looking at me weird. They're, Fear not means you are responsible for the fear you are now engaged in and he is commanding us to stop it. He's not having sympathy with us saying, well, I understand what you're going through. You know, I know why you threw that plate at the ground. No, fear, you are responsible. And he is giving us a command not to fear. But it's also, in the very same words, it's an invitation to trust him. So it's not negative. It, fear not. How, how do you do that? 
How do you obey a command that is not suggesting to you that you, you attend some classes on fear management? I'm serious. This is what we're used to. This is That kind of counseling is inside our churches now. Here, it, it's coming to me and, and it's telling me, stop doing that. And it's love speaking, so he's not threatening me. He just says, stop doing that. It, it, it doesn't tell you to fight fear thoughts. I don't need another way to put it. I mean, when fearful thoughts arise, I do not say, I won't think that. Because I notice that every time I say I won't think that, I've just thought about what I won't think about, which means my thoughts have had twins. Now I've got two thoughts on my hand. You haven't noticed that? Yeah. That wouldn't help. So we don't gradually change our outlook. We don't say, I won't think, I won't think, I won't think about that. Nor do we frantically repeat scriptures so we'll have some faith thoughts. I, I don't know. I, I meet, this is, and I'm not making this up, this is where people live. So fear not. Fear not is stating an instant change. Fear not. Done. Fear not. Don't, it didn't say try not to fear. Or let's come on a new adventure of not fearing after a year in counseling. Seriously, fear not indicates an instant change. Stop doing that. Fear not. So he is saying that fear not, it's changing what you look at. Fear not. And it says in most of your Bibles, stand still and see what the salvation of the Lord. So he's not merely telling us to fear not. He's telling us how to do it. So it's an instant change based on what you look at and based on what you look at, what you think about. And and to say, well, I can't do that, that's part of the lie, because you can do that. You see, it's impossible to think of two contradictory things in the same thought. I cannot think about you and think about him all in the same thought. I'm, I'm focused here. Now I'm not focused, I'm focused here. I cannot think in two directions at the same time. He's saying, fear not. Change what you're looking at. You are looking back there at a cloud of dust in the sky that indicate Egyptians are coming. And you've made a story to go with that. Well, stop it. Turn. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. But he will accomplish for you this day. 
And it's interesting, every time fear is mentioned, especially in the Old Testament where it's spoken of a lot, it's always to do with your will, your choices. Never does it speak about how you feel. David said, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. If I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, period. And of course, the great statement of the Old Testament, you are with me. The Lord is my present tense in this moment. And with it, then we've just had a new story. I'm not giving you that story anymore. My new story is that I, I see the Lord and his salvation and what he will do for me. And I don't know what that is, but it's going to be jolly good. It's, I, you, you follow me? I've changed the direction of my seeing and my thinking. And I say it again, it is not merely a negative thought. He is actually telling us how to do it. It's, and that is so, because I, I hear you, you know, you, 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 you mustn't, you mustn't be afraid. Well, that doesn't help me. But, but he tells me how. It's not merely a negative command. He shows us what to do in order to enter into the world of fear not. And there are two sentences, well, no, two words here. Um, the first one, uh, do not fear, well, this, the New American Standard translates it actually better than most. It says, stand by. But in most of your Bibles, it says, stand still. A and then further down, it says, the Lord will fight you while you keep silent. So the two words there, and they're two different words, actually, um, but they both begin with the idea of silence. Actually, um, it's pretty strong. Um, and the message uh, translation is, the Lord will fight for you while you keep your mouth shut. Uh, and um, that, that he actually has caught the thing there. But um, stand still, and I'll get to that in a minute, they both indicate the silence. He is saying, D stop doing. You're, you're frantic. You're trying to, you're, you're, and, but you're going absolutely nowhere. You're aimless. You're just going in circles, futile. So stop, stop doing, stop doing. You know, you ever try to calm a frightened horse? You know. But also the word indicates, as um, Peterson does in his translation, shut your mouth. Um, it, it's, it's vital to know he is saying, I am addressing your doing and I'm addressing your talking. And I hate to say it, but he says, shut up. It's, you, you're going to refocus your thoughts and you're going to refocus your doings and the focus is now on what God is doing and what God is saying. Stand still. <laughs> That's the most terrifying words the flesh ever hears. <laughs> I've got to do something. 
And you're saying just stand here? Seriously, hear me. It's not a fairy tale. He is saying stand still. And everything in me does not want to stand still. It's this control thing. I, I've got to do something that would just indicate I'm somewhat in control, I think. Stand still. And if you don't stand still, we call it anxiety and panic all over the place. Well, it, it says here for that, stand still, it, it, it translates that as stand by. And that's slightly better. The word actually means report yourself present. I don't know if they still do it in school or if you ever did it over here. I can only report on England. But when we were in class, we, we had to say we were present. That's this word. That's this word. It means I've shown up, I'm in my desk, I'm present, I'm ready. That's exactly what the word means. I am present and ready at this location. And at this location, I'm taking a firm stand. That is, I'm not about to sneak out the back door once I've said I'm present. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. It's intentional being present to God who is present to you. So God is present to us. Much of the time, we're not present to him. So he is saying, be present to him who is always present to you. A person in trauma does not need a lesson on faith. They just need to be present to him. And remember that. Um, this isn't a formula that says, well, you, this is the formula, you've got to do it. No, be present to him. Be present to the one who calls you beloved. Be present to the one who knows you exactly as you are and loves you exactly as you are. Be present to him. Only then, once you're present to him and established in that, then turn around, you can look at your circumstances. But most important thing the important thing Cheryl has told me so many instances when she goes into death row um, in prisons um, to just let Jesus fill the cell let Jesus be present to this broken abused terrified person and he can change everything just by being present that, that's the idea it's the opposite of all anxiety be present to him. All this flitting from one thing to another is going absolutely nowhere. This meaningless, aimless, futile circle. Stop! But it's, I'm not giving you something else to do. I'm just saying be present. Be present to the one who is present to you. And then present to this moment. For well, that's the only place he dwells in. Be present to now. Now, in the great tick-tock of life, this instant, this now, this is, is where he is. He, he's, this is. He's at home in now. 
So, see, my control issues, I, I don't like now. The truth, I hate now. Because now is constantly telling me you're not in control. So what do I do? I deny. I deny now. Um, and sometimes my denial of now is that I'm wishing things were different or complaining that things are as they are. Because you realize that when you wish things were different, that's a futile experience. Or are you trying to tell yourself, if I had enough whatever, I could change this. My wish is almost, that's why in all our children's fairy stories, I give you three wishes. Wishes in, in our ancient mind have got power. So I, I wish things were different. Hopefully a genie will make it so, you know. But I complain, because what, what am I com when complaining is saying that things are not the way they should be. Oh, yeah? Meaning you have an agenda. That's how they should be. It should be different. And I reject this. I reject this, great me. I reject this. should be different. Why is it the way it is? Well, it wasn't my fault. Somebody else did this. They said that. Because I was stupid enough to listen to them. And that's when we blame God and live the rest of our lives hating him for what he did. In this present moment, the way things are, not the way they should be, could be, ought to be, if only he hadn't have said and she hadn't have... Just forget it. Is, are, now. The way they are. But in the middle of this is now our mess that's where he lives that's where the covenant union is be present to that do, do you follow me okay this word I, whenever I perform marriages and if any of you I don't do it anymore so don't, don't be calling me off this but um, whenever I have married people, um, this is something I emphasize. The, the Western marriage for a pastor who wants these people to understand you are entering into a covenant union, the Western marriage can be a great distraction. Uh, it's all about dresses and capes and guest lists and Lord knows what else. I found it fascinating in Japan when I was trying to find out what do these people believe. And, and one of them said, well, we are all, all Japanese are born Shinto. That's just the national religion of Japan. But when we're teenagers, we become Christians. I said, you do? They said, yes, because we like... The wedding dress. The whole, that's the idea among teenagers in Japan. Become Christian so we can have a Christian wedding. It tells me a lot, doesn't it? Anyway, 
the real marriage, what every pastor wishes they were listening to, is this. I am saying you are now stepping together in front of witnesses to be present to each other. Which means you can never be present to anyone else again. Uh, and I, I say it especially to the groom as we're waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. And I turn to him, I says, you've got five minutes left. In five minutes, you are going to die. You're going to die to the possibility of being anyone else's husband. I said, at this moment, at this moment, you have the choice to go anywhere in the world, to any woman in the world, you are free. But in five minutes, four minutes, you, you, you will become present to that lady and you will have lost the opportunity forever to be present to anyone else. People laugh when I say that, but that's what the whole service is about. And you're saying now, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse, you, you, that's it. it. Whatever happens, I am present to this lady, this man. That, that's the meaning of this word. I'm not going to be distracted by what's happening over here and go and be present to it. Do you follow what I mean by that? You're going to be present to what she says, he says, and oh, where are we going? Well, I'll be present to the future where it must be a grave in Egypt. No. I lost all of that opportunity. I am now present to the one who is not merely God. He is a covenant God who by the shedding of his own blood has bound himself to us. And therefore for me to be in now is to be present to and woven into him who is present now. Oh, I've lost control. I'm, I'm a bouncy control is I was going to control all that happening out there and all those people and all the things they said. I'm not in control. I'm trusting. It's a weird feeling. I feel I've abandoned myself. I don't know where I'm going. Free fall into his faithfulness, which is new. I'd never thought about the faithfulness of God until I entrusted myself to him. It was just a jolly good idea, things you read in books, the faithfulness of God. But how do you even comprehend it until you then trusted yourself and entrusted yourself without an agenda, without a template that he's got to fit into? I've, you follow me? I trust him to do... Oh, uh, 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 uh. You don't trust him to do anything. You trust him to be himself. That really I could spend an hour on, couldn't I? But we entrust ourselves into the care of him who is the expert, the genius in love. He is love who knows what he's doing to achieve love's end. 
And, and he's already given us the standard. He loved us and gave himself. To, he's already given himself to us. God himself in Christ entered into the free fall. What would it look like if God totally gave himself to the human creature? Because it had never been done before. Until Jesus said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I was in him. And so now God in Christ and me in him, he's going to discover, if I dare use that term of God, he's going to discover what free fall is. Free fall into death with me and for me. And the Father to raise him from the dead. And love has now written its ultimate standard. Stand still. It's the intentional trust. But then, this is the neatest thing. He says, stand still and see what he will do for you. Now, I don't want to push this too far. But he could have said, see what he will do. Right? The sentence would be good grammar. Stand still and see what the Lord will do. But it is do for you. You see, this is not some dead formula statement about a faceless deity who does things to make himself look good. I was raised with that deity. God does it for his own glory. Uh oh, that's not in the Bible. He does it. He doesn't do it for that glory that a narcissistic God you invented. No, that that narcissistic God does it to say, See, I'm so good, I did that. Look at me, praise me, praise me, praise me. No, he needs counseling. <laughs> this God did it for you. I mean, don't sleep tonight. Say that all night long. He did it for you. For you. Now, Luke 15, the shepherd went into the wilderness. Why? So he gets the, the badge of honor when he comes out. Best shepherd of the year. He went in. He says, I have lost my sheep. And that's why he goes in. And when he found the sheep, he rejoiced and put it on his shoulders. And when he came home, he says, rejoice, I found my sheep. The whole jolly thing was about the sheep. The shepherd loved his sheep. When the boy came home, the father hears, or partly hears, the long liturgy of all the stupid things the kid had done. And then he almost said the same thing as here, like, shut up. He says, you are my son. So what do we do now? Have the kid come and parade before the people and say, I've got the best dad in the world. You should listen to what he did. No. He said, kill the fatty calf, bring the best robe, put it on him. We're going to have a ball. It's all about the kid. That, you see, is the glory of God. The glory of God is found in his opinion of you. We've been there before, but that's the meaning of the word glory. The first meaning in English of the word glory 
in the Hebrew-Greek language is an opinion. It's the first meaning of the word. God's love for you, his opinion of you, is his glory. Because you won't find another God that humans ever invented that has an opinion of you like that. And that's why the Bible says, who is like unto you among the gods. All these stupid gods that humans invented in their warped imagination, none of them think anything of you. They hate you. They despise you. They're pissed off with you all the time. Now come on, this God who is never annoyed with us, he loves us. Loves us for our sake. We can speak of what God has done for the world, his intention for mankind, that you don't know what we're talking about until you say he loved me and gave himself for me. That right. That's the faith of relation. That's the trust of relationship. He did. He didn't do it for us. He did it for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, for me, for every one of you. Amen. Only then can you say for the world. When you've seen yourself, because he says you will see the salvation. That's what he's going to do for you. Salvation of the Lord. Well, we've talked about that before too. Salvation is a word, very specific word in Scripture. And it means something that God alone can do. You have absolutely no part in salvation. It is something only God can do. This verse that I just read is the first time the word salvation appears in the Bible. As if to say, now you got it. Salvation is, he's going to open the Red Sea. <laughs> yeah, man had nothing to do with it. They sat back and watched God do what only God could do. That's salvation. When he talked to the disciples, remember they said, we want to come with you to the cross. Because they didn't know it was the cross. But he said, I I'm going away and I've got something to do. And they said, we want to come with you. And he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. What he did on the cross, he did absolutely alone. Salvation means something that only God could imagine and something only God could bring to pass, accomplish it. And that's something, as you keep on opening up through Scripture, it means deliverance. And that doesn't mean casting out demons. That might be part of it. But please don't take that word and just apply it to that as some of the charismatics did. No, it's deliverance essentially from the darkness and the lie that cripples us. But it's a deliverance from, but it's a deliverance to wholeness and total health. I say that because in the New Testament the word salvation applies to physical, mental emotional, as well as healing of my deepest spirit. It's a restoration to my original blueprint. Salvation. So, stop being afraid. How do I do that? 
be present to him, which involves be still. None all over here and over there, just be still. Be present to him and see what he's going to do for you. I, I can almost see an excitement there. If I announce to a little child I'm going to do something, it's one thing. But if I say, wait and see what I'm going to do for you, I can't say that without an excitement in my voice. I'm going to do this for you. To which the child responds in an entirely different way than if I just said I'm going to do it. And what is it? He's going to show you so you stand back and see his salvation. All you can do is say thank you. That, that's where we part company from much of our evangelical friends who say that he only made salvation possible because salvation really depends on you. you you've got to have enough faith to take it. You've got to repent enough to get it. What, what I'm saying, no, you have nothing to do with salvation. You can't claim a fingernail of it. He did it all. My faith is to respond to what he's done. Therefore, my faith is a thank you. Not a desperate grabbing. It's, it's, he's done it. I, I, I wake up. I thank him. And, and repentance is in the light of that. What am I doing here? It's restoration. He says what, what God would accomplish for you. That is a very interesting word. I'll even give it to you in Hebrew, it's Asa. And it begins, the first time you'll read it is in Genesis 1 and 2. It means to make, to fashion. Um, it's a word used of artists a lot. So it's the painter that can create a scene of beauty. It's used to, uh, very much of a potter who takes clay and fashions it into something. It's all those words where you take something and you make it into something else. And I find it fascinating it's, it's used here. Stand still and, and watch the master artists take this situation that is impossible and you should see what he's going to do with it. Be your salvation. I remember I, I, on Cape Cod, it's a place where there's a lot of artists, and, and there was this group, I don't know, three or four of them, and, and they had this little shack on the beach, and they went down the beach and they picked up all the junk that the tide brought in. And, and of course, after a storm especially, that would be bits and pieces of everything. Uh, you would get a doll's leg, you know, some doll had been in the water and then smashed and, and it, it, all bits and pieces of what once were people's treasures. Now the ocean has smashed it and throws it up. Here's a piece of wood, you know, and it's been washed and washed and washed by the ocean and here it's smooth and you, you get the picture. And they would pick up all this junk 
And they'd pick one of the artists and put the pile in front of him and say, now what are you going to do with this? And they came up with the most incredible putting together of the junk to turn into something you'd never dreamed of. And I would go as they passed it around to the four artists and you'd see what each one of them did. Of course, you know where I'm going with this. He came to the beach of our life and all he found was a pile of junk. All of our attempts that went nowhere, all the brokenness of our lives. He met us at the Red Sea shore, that's for sure. And what he ended up doing, you should see what I'm going to do for you. You should see my Asa for you. I'm going to accomplish the putting together of your life. He said, you think this is such a mess? He said, this is going to be the very cornerstone of your existence. He said, in 3,000 years time, they're going to refer back to this moment that you're standing before the Red Sea. People, you are going to now have a foundation in time and space and It's no longer covenant. You will have covenant written to you when he performs his wonders in the water. This is, you're going to have a track record. This is the arena in which his forever covenant takes place. Outside of all theory and formulas, he's going to physically demonstrate his love for you. You should see what I'm going to do with this. This is the time to celebrate. Oh. And he said, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Yeah, and that's the word here. See, I've been talking about stand still or stand by or be present. This word is silent. That he is saying for sure now, Stop the hysteria. Stop your whining complaints. And in the silence, focus on who I am and what I'm doing, though you haven't even seen it yet. Be silent. It matters what we say. Well, James chapter 3, and that's another whole message, but James chapter 3 makes it plain that our words control our body. That is, my body as it stands as a body, my body where it goes, my body what it plans, my my words control it. Um, It's one part of the quantum, you might have heard of quantum, but they discovered in 1972 that there's no such thing as a bad gene. Your genes are still controlled by your words and your thoughts and your fears and your joys and your peace and your anxiety. But that didn't fit the AMA. They're making too much money on telling you that you've got a bad gene. And so to this day, they're still being told that your genes are hereditary. Um, you got it from your father. No, long ago, good science 
said it, your body is controlled by your words. But it's not only that I control my own body in every way with my words. My words are a prophecy of where I'm going. My words describe my future. You say, well, I didn't mean it. I'm sorry your body didn't know that. <laughs> you're, you're fashioning, you're fashioning, your asa, your own body. But also, you see, when I talk in the garage or out on the prairie or in the office, you heard me and you believed me. Or at least you opened up enough to receive what I was saying and give it thought. And what? It, you, you received it into this incredible thing that works with words. Fear is transmitted. I talk, I complain. And whether you like it or not, unless you're intelligent of these things, you'll accept what you're hearing. And you will leave that conversation more afraid, more anxious. Only now you've contributed your own thoughts to it, and we've got a bonfire going on now. He said, you see, they've been talking, I don't, were there no graves in Egypt? You could have died in peace there. Look what you did. Yeah. See, you di you're not saying that just to yourself. The camp is saying it to each other. And then they have a representative to say to Moses. So what's happening, that's spreading like a prairie fire. You're picking up those words and you're picking up those words and then you pass those words on. And he comes, yes, over Facebook. And then, do you realize what he's doing? Fear not. Be still. And shut up. Because your words matter. Your words are living seeds. You're taking everybody with you. Not only directing your own person on a spiral downward. But your words are contributing to bring everybody down with you. You're affirming the fears of others. But, if I dare say so, this word silent is the neatest word in the Hebrew language. It means, I mean it means what I've said, be still. But the silence in the Hebrew language has this deeper meaning of engrave. It means a plow cutting through the soil and turning it over. It means that as you keep your mouth shut and in a silence that is focused on him, he is engraved upon your heart. And the plow has opened you up to receive the seeds of God's love. There's one last thing I want to say. And maybe I shouldn't. It's too big. But I've got to throw it out to you. 
the words used here in the whole picture here is actually but a reflection very real reflection but it's a reflection of Genesis 1 where it says that we're invited as human beings to enter into his rest because what I've just said is is that we enter into his rest what is the rest it came at the end of the creation week so for six days God said God said God did God did God said and at the end of the week he says rest and he invited man into that rest man who had been created on the sixth day is invited to enter with God on the seventh day to rest in what God has done the man had no part in that at all man didn't show up to the sixth day but God says now you come and you and I will rest together you'll look at what I've done and say it's finished it's done I can rest you don't have to have anxiety about anything I did everything before you showed up now enter into my rest and be excited about what I did along with me do, do you follow that he said it's finished his rest is that I join with him laugh with him and say it's finished or stand still I will be present to his finished and I'll shut my mouth about all things that I say are unfinished and make them bow to the finished work of Christ all week long he had been creating the creation week he'd been creating fashioning and, and the word asa is used the, the word for calling things out of nothing is bara and that's a word only used of god and is used in the beginning god created he called it out of nothing but thereafter what he had called out of nothing he played with it like a kid with play-doh he, he called it out of nothing then he asa he made he fashioned he so all the creation week long he had done he had done he had done asa asa then he said now rest i've done it and they rested so that's the meaning of rest it's other words translate Sabbath or Shabbat and it means I mean literally the idea is to quit work stop doing rest up be present to me watch and see what I will do for you also what I've done for you that, that's Sabbath that's the meaning the, the Sabbath rest and and you remember in the Old Testament when they that was part of their week the Sabbath uh, even their animals had to do because if, if you're going to work your animals well you've got to work not everything shut up be still be silent keep your words to a minimum 
That, that's people say well Sunday is the Sabbath of the New Testament. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. We, we celebrate Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. But you might remember Jesus was in the grave on the Sabbath. That was the ultimate of, of the, the rest that brought the end of the old covenant. He rose from the dead on Sunday. And anyway, the evangelical church of today has destroyed the very idea of Sabbath. You go to any church within 500 miles of here. Sunday is anything but be still, shut up, and focus only on Him. Now, every committee meeting you can ever have, come on, let's keep talking, talking, talking. Come on, let's decide, make decisions today. The choir practice, the better, anything, anything. It's Sunday, let's... You're exhausted on Sunday night for serving the Lord. I am. There's something wrong with that altogether. Not that we're trying to turn Sunday into a Sabbath, because it's not. In the New Testament, Sabbath describes life. Hebrews 4, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And therefore, resting in him, we enter a world of Sabbath. Which means everything I've said this morning applies to all of life. It isn't just when you're facing the Red Sea. It's all of life. You face life. Fear not. It's okay. Fear not. Stand still. Be present. In the kitchen, in the work, the office, school. Be present to him who's present to you. Stand still. And see, in this moment, in this day, the salvation of the Lord. For his deliverance and returning you to the wholeness, restoring you, is an ongoing process. And if anything goes wrong today, well, it's only his opportunity. You, you said it was wrong because you couldn't control it. Whatever happens today is his opportunity. He will fight for you while you keep silent. You say, where does prayer fit into that? I'll tell you that another day. But it's not a control. But I will say this, there are many times we pray when we should be silent. As the people cried to the Lord, he said, be still. And then later on he says, they stopped crying to me, go forward. It's time to act. But that's another story. We act out of our stillness. Anyway, I think you've got something out of all this. We thank you, Father. We thank you, Father. We seated at your right hand are in the process of learning to be present there at all times. And in that stillness to hear your voice, to know our identity in Christ, and to walk through our Red Sea. We thank you. 
Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.